brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Soft Rep Radio, on time, on target. If you're watching on YouTube, which we've been doing, you see Thomas uh, Cora in the right frame of the screen. Really excited to have you on. Um, for those who don't know, we, we refer to you by our friend Dale Comstock, who's a mutual friend. Uh, Thomas is a 24-year CIA security officer involved in Mogadishu, the resurgence of Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines, and also the hunt for Osama bin Laden post 9-11. He has a book coming out, which we'll get into, and, and we're really excited more than anything just to have you on and uh, have this introduction to you. It's an amazing career you've had. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Absolutely. So the book is coming out on May 7th, so it's, uh, it's a while away, but the um, pre-order is up now on Amazon.com. It's called Guardian, Life in the Crosshairs of the CIA's War on Terror. Uh, you wrote it with John Land and Lindsey Preston. Um, so I think it'd, it'd be great to just get started on, you know, your career from the inception. How did you get involved in the, uh, in the CIA and where did it all begin? Well, it, uh, started, uh, with a, an ad in the newspaper in the Milwaukee journal. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, that almost sounds like you're beginning. joking. I, I, that's surprising. Yeah. It's, it's how it happened. I was, uh, I finished grad school. I was coaching wrestling. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I, I always had a, a and interested in uh, federal service, uh, but I wasn't quite sure. So I, I, I answered an ad, got an interview. Uh, next thing you know, uh, 1989, I was driving my 82 Toyota Tercel out to uh, Washington, D.C. to start a career and uh, had no real background in security, um, but that's what they put me into, um, and it was definitely a good fit. And uh, from there, um, things got interesting. I uh, was uh, first posted to a uh, field office doing background investigations, which um, is pretty boring work, <laughs> quite frankly. But it's a good way to test your mettle. Um, find out if you can work independently, if you, uh, you know, test integrity because you're on, on your own doing backgrounds, uh, checking neighborhoods, doing things with very little supervision. Uh, but an opportunity came my way uh, that was uh, a, a, a life rope. Uh, from that boring existence, I, uh, there was an opportunity to uh, go to a training course, a brand new training course called the SPOC, which is the Special Protective Operations course. And it was uh, a course developed to provide protective operations training for people who are going to protect our agency personnel overseas. And um, it was in response to um, a couple of different incidents, one of which was the, uh, the death of Colonel Rowe. Uh, was it, it was killed by, um, by terrorists in the Philippines and then uh, a threat against some of our people in Manila. 
Uh, fast forward about a year to this new course. I was one of the uh, first um, group to go through the training course, the first official training uh, running. And um, it was exciting. We had some very uh, really good instructors from a variety of different uh, backgrounds, uh, special operations. We were using um, theory and uh, techniques from DEA, you know, law enforcement, because this was very much undercover. This was going to be low-profile protection, uh, something kind of new. We're going to be working in a foreign environment where we cannot be flagged as protection, um, and we need to still provide a high level uh, of, uh, of security for our people working. So uh, I went through the training course, um, and then I was uh, signed back to, to, into Washington, D.C. in this security duty office, which was our, basically our 911 center. Uh, we answer all all the strange calls from people who want to talk to the CIA, especially <laughs> when they have weird things that they want to talk about. A lot of conspiracy um, theorists. Oh, every <laughs> every day and every night. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, it was during that time that I really was exposed to terrorism. Uh, we had a shooting at the CIA headquarters yeah. uh, in the turn lane uh, on uh, 25 January. Uh, 1993. And uh, I was on duty. I just finished my first cup of coffee. And uh, our security protective service, that's our uh, uniform division, opened the back door, looked at us and said, shots fired main gate, Hmm. at least two down. Now, that's his unprecedented type of uh, communication. So I sat there and thought for a second, this guy must be kidding. And then I'm like, oh, no, he's not. So at that moment, I hit the drop line to Fairfax County Police, started notifying them, and then the news started coming in from our uh, our forward uh, deployed uh, security uh, personnel at the gate. And it turned out that uh, several people were killed and several people were wounded. And um, at first, uh, you know, jumping forward to 2018, we thought it was an active shooter, uh, a workplace violence issue. So we were scouring, started scouring our records for disgruntled employees and all that. It later turned out that that it was a Pakistani terrorist who uh, decided to uh, uh, attack CIA personnel and entering the building in the morning. And he um, and he's quite effective. He was wearing a ballistic vest. He uh, parked his car to block the um, the vehicles that were in, and then he he walked backwards shooting the, the vehicles. And so that was a baptism in fire for me in terms of terrorism. And uh, it was a, a precursor to basically the rest of my career, which was woven tightly around terrorism and responding to terrorism all the way until I, I left in 2013. I, I think I remember that incident. After that, they did a lot of things to harden the CIA headquarters down at Langley, didn't they, as far as like Absolutely. making them go through checkpoints before they even got that far. Um, different measures were taken, as I recall. Absolutely. It, it was a wake-up call for us. We, we had been relying on deterrence and um, maybe mystique a bit. Um, now, we had, we had good security, but it was all the way inside our, our, our basically our compound, and we had nothing for those individuals who were just sitting in that turn lane. And now we have all kinds of different uh, security measures there. So... Uh, but that was a that was a wake up call because um, here we have a Pakistani terrorist and he disappeared into Pakistan, 
And between the agency and the, uh, and the FBI, they were to track him down, uh, lure him to a meeting, captured him, brought him back to the United States. He was tried, convicted, and executed. Wow. There's, uh, I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about um, running security for the agency. I, I think it's really interesting how this developed, and it sounds like you were kind of at the beginning of it as far as the, the mobile security aspect for the case officers and operations officers. Um, way in the past, uh, you know, back when we had OSS and, and Jedberg teams, we pretty much sent these guys out completely by themselves, um, parachuting them into occupied territory and occupied France and things like this. And, and some of those guys, a lot of those guys died. I mean, we had entire teams wiped out. I mean, it's important, important to mention that. Um, but then, as you said, there's the incident with Colonel Rowe being killed in the Philippines, um, by, uh, I believe it was by the NPA. I've actually been to the Correct. traffic circle where that happened. Um, and, um, and you're saying after that, they really came to believe that, you know, our agency personnel need to start having some sort of close protection detail and I guess high risk environments. Correct. Yeah, it was, a, it was a new philosophy and, um, we embraced it, uh, because of a couple of those incidents uh, but the, the, on the protective theory side, um, they were coming to this conclusion that uh, what they call the iron box does not work anymore. That's uh, armored cars, uh, lots of guys with guns, and just a uh, show of force. And uh, the real wake-up call was the Harehausen assassination. And that's uh, where uh, Alfred Harehausen, who was the head of the Deutsche Bank, was targeted by with, the Red Army faction. With an IED. An IED. And it was... Uh, it was uh, a futuristic version of the IED uh, in terms of the, at that time, nobody had ever really done that. It was a, it was a platter charge on the back of a bike uh, that was placed in, along his route. And he had, um, he had former, uh, what would we consider Delta Force for us. Their, their uh, German Delta Force was around him. He had a 50-man detail. He had the best armored car Mercedes-Benz ever made. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that platter charge went through that armored car like a hot knife through butter. Wow! And only and killed him and did not uh, just mildly wound the driver. At that point, there were uh, people in the really studying protective operations said, mm, "You know, uh, if these guys are going to tear through our armor like this, the amount of guys we have, the amount of guns we have, isn't going to matter. So, what is it that we really need to be focusing on?" And so they uh, this they looked into counter surveillance and surveillance detection. And that became a big um, turning point in terms of protective operations. When you combine that, those, those theories with a lower profile protection detail, which makes it much harder for the bad guy to spot you, you you've increased your security dramatically. And that, if you, if you merge those two, that's kind of what w- the theory we went on at, at the agency. In fact, at one point, I was on the counter surveillance team for the director, the deputy director, and... The former director, at that time we had three, we had Gates. And uh, so we were actually actively um, working this, uh, this process, this, this new uh, procedure. But uh, on, the, on the protection side, you're, you're correct. In the old days, uh, there were a lot of military people in OSS. Uh, but in the CIA in 1989, 90, early 90s, we were now uh, mostly college uh, type people and with very little experience in the military or with weapons and the threat was changing. We were, we were now dealing not with the cold war where maybe they'll 
they'll knock your teeth out yeah. or throw you in a dungeon until we can do a spy exchange. When you're dealing with terrorism and, nar- and narco traffickers, um, which was another area we were kind of dabbling in, um, there's no negotiating. They don't care about what government you work for. They're just going to get rid of you. So when you face that, you've got to uh, up your security posture. So the, the, the creation of the SPOC, actually, the SPOC is the course. The, the actual, um, and this is the first time I, I know of that we were allowed to actually say this, but the name of the unit was called the POC, and that stands for Protective Operations Cadre. And they used the word cadre specifically because it wasn't a full-time position. What it was was um, a group of individuals in security, it was all staff, were trained. Uh, they'd go to the SPOC course, and then they would, uh, they would wait in their normal jobs. And when a op- uh, deployment was, uh, was initiated, they would um, ask to go. And depending on if their manager you know, could free up that space, they would go. And they would deploy. And um, so we were a cadre of part-timers. And that, ha- that worked until uh, basically uh, 9-11. And 9-11, we, it was just too much work. I mean, yeah. And so we had to bring in contractors. And that's where, um, now, now I'm fast-forwarding all the way to um, the, the protective operations world that we know of um, with Benghazi and all that. Yeah where you have a staff officer and a number of contractors. Uh, and that, that came about um, uh, in the late 90s, early uh, 2000. I, I don't know if you're allowed to say it or not, but I mean, we know today is the, the GRS program, the guys who do global security for the agency today, um, who, as you mentioned, are mostly contractors through a separate company oftentimes. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of those guys, you know, former Rangers, former Marines, former par- pararescue guys who have gone on to work for GRS. Um, what, what was that shift like? I mean, uh, if you could take us a little bit through 9 11, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, the military and the agency, and obviously your corner of the agency where you worked as well, I mean, I imagine it must have been like drastic changes going from, as you say, a small little part-time mom and pop shop doing security for the agency. And now it's like industrial scale. You know, you have case officers going into the wildlands of Pakistan, the, the federally administrated areas and all kinds of crazy places I can imagine. Well, that's, that's an interesting part. Um, we were operating in those wild and woolly places in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew about us. We were right. completely clandestine in the sense that um, with one exception, an individual in Pakistan, Henry <laughs> Davis. <laughs> Other than that, we really never came up on the scope. And which, I mean, uh, I'm going to take a moment to brag a little bit, but sure. the numbers can, can back this up. Uh, when we are doing our mission, which is mobile protective operations. The the POC slash the other acronym, what I'm, which I'm not allowed to mention, the one you did. Uh, the that element has never lost a protectee. We have and uh, we've only lost one actual member during our primary mission. We have lost people during a secondary stationary uh, base protective mode, and that would be coast, and that would be Benghazi. But in terms of our primary, in all those years, 
and then we were all, you name the hotspots, we were there. Um, we, our low-profile operational techniques kept us out of the crosshairs. And um, so, so the, after 9-11, when we started picking up a lot more work because we had a lot more people going into the war zones, you're right, it was, it was a massive influx. And we had to learn how to um, uh, incorporate uh, non-staff officers into it. Now, mind you, they were bringing some incredible skill sets in. I mean, we were staffers before. And back when I was doing that kind of work, GPS were three letters in the alphabet. <laughs> and there was no QRF <laughs> or any of the other acronyms, quick reaction force. If, um, if you got into something, you either got out of it or that was it. Um, so uh, it was a, it was a definitely a, um, a good thing to bring in um, this the, the exceptional talent that we had. We had to deal with some of the contractual issues that go with other companies. We, we set up um, very strong vetting processes. And that's why we had, uh, you know, I think we had some of the best guys in the business. Uh, on the contract side, and I think they don't get enough credit um, for for being there, out out there, putting their lives on the line, and and getting really no recognition. Um, but if you don't vet correctly and you don't supervise correctly, you can have some pretty catastrophic events. And if you look at some of the other uh, elements, I don't want to put any pointy fingers, but there's some other. Um, or uh, government organizations that have had contractors working for them that it didn't work out as well. Yeah. I mean, today they have, what is it like a three or four week or the three or four week vetting process. If you want to go on the mobile contract and then there's one for the security guys or, or the static security guys also. Correct. They have a, they have a, a very strong uh, vetting process. And also um, if, if, you know, if you, if something goes wrong and you do something that you shouldn't, you're, you're not going to be invited back. And I'll tell you, uh, it, you, you want to be on the A-team, and we pretty much were the A-teams in, in terms of housing, transportation, um, armor, uh, cutting-edge armor. We're talking about the money spent on armored cars. Uh, they, they spared no expense. No well, how, did you see things change from what you were saying when you were with the POC to today's, uh, well, you know, agency security where, you know, you guys were more clandestine, low profile. And I don't want to say the guys today are high profile rolling around Iraq and Afghanistan, but I mean, it's a different ball game. Correct. Uh, what, what happened was, um, I, I'm, I'm kind of an unusual security officer. Uh, and to give you a, a quick snippet of what CIA security really is, um, it's, it's a, we use the term baked in, not bolted on our security apparatus came into the, into the CIA in 1947. So we were integral to the entire growth of the, uh, organization, but well, we kind of edged more into personnel security, um, as time went on and the majority of counterintelligence. Pardon? Uh, when you say that the, the agency security apparatus started in you know the 50s, I mean, was that more originally more of a counterintelligence um, capacity that they were looking at? 
A combination of the two, yeah. It was security support, counterintelligence, and um, vetting. Interesting. Vetting. Mm-hmm. And, but, but now we're very much heavy on personnel security. In fact, that's, that's really the main thrust. And then you've got some of these side elements that are in technical security. Um, you know, the people who are in locks and alarms. And then you have um, uh, those of us gunslinger types. We, we, the, the protective operations side really was only the director's protection staff prior to uh, 1991. And, um, and that was, you know, that's more of suits and going to nice places, not, not where we went. Um, so it was, a, it was a dramatic change. And I, I'll, I'll be honest, uh, the agency management really wasn't really uh, thrilled with it. They, uh, they always thought we were temporary. Um, the, if you look at the way you mentioned something earlier about the, the cold war, um, cold war warrior type CIA officers, uh, did not carry weapons. Right. And they believed that they relied on their wits. Now the threat level changed, the threat dynamic changed. So, um, we had to change with it, but a lot of those guys who cut their teeth, uh, in the cocktail circuit of Europe, they're senior managers now, and they're not really understanding this, gu- you know, guns and running right. around. And so it, there's always been a rub. And um, we barely stayed in existence <laughs> during that period up until 9-11. And uh, there was a name change, and I won't go into the name change, but uh, when I was a senior team leader along with uh, uh, another gentleman, and that's when we started uh, our numbers jumped and because we were being worn out. We were actually uh, guys weren't getting enough training. They were basically deploying all the time. Um, but there's a lot of pride in the unit. Did you guys get any resistance from the case officers uh, as throughout the 90s and even after 9-11 who are like, ah, I don't I don't want these these ex-army guys following me around places. What What, what is this? Absolutely. Actually, early on, um, as I said, I had an unusual security career. I, I jumped in and out of security over, over the 24 years. I actually was operational. Um, I worked in the CTC, uh, for a number of years doing different jobs. One of which was in the counterterrorism unit. And that is an operational unit that was targeting terrorists and look and specifically doing a variety of different things. But one of the things that I was involved in because of my security background was, uh, looking for terrorist signature, mm-hmm. looking so when I went to Khartoum, we were tracking terrorists. Now, Khartoum is the club med of terrorism. Uh, when I went there, everybody was there, including Osama bin Laden. But he wasn't as big of a fish back then. Back then, it was Abu Nidal and Carlos the Jackal. And uh, I got to Sudan and got to work with a guy who basically got Carlos. Uh, a, a legend in special forces, a guy named Billy Wall. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I arrived in just after after Billy uh, scored on that. Wow. And uh, his book, uh, Hunting the Jackal, talks about it. It's a that. great book. And it's the only book besides mine that actually talks about that <laughs> unit. And to give you a corollary, the, the British have a, a unit similar, uh, 14 intelligence debt. And, in, and I've... I've looked at their literature on them. It's, it's almost identical doing the same thing. They would do counter surveillance and surveillance detection and surveillance on IRA bad guys mm-hmm. for the SAS. So, um, so that's what w- I was doing. So when I came back from that, I went back into the, to the POC. 
I brought that uh, information and that training to the to the PAC, and we started doing teaching our our PAC officers how to be more clandestine. And the first step is understand who your client is. Your client is a clandestine officer. Uh, their job is to meet uh, and recruit assets. Um, and they use specific tradecraft to do that. And if we don't, we the protectors, don't understand that tradecraft, um, we're not very effective. And they're not going to like us much. Do you have, we're not really helping them. Do you have any stories about I mean, I know you couldn't get into specifics uh, about the when and the where, maybe, but uh, particularly hairy source meets or, you know, any any oh. weird things like that that may have gone down. Um, yeah, there was a, there was a situation in a, a country. I, I had a very good working relationship with this was this was when I was doing the counterterrorism unit stuff. Um, we had an, an asset was captured and killed. Actually, we didn't. He wasn't killed at that point, but he was he was captured, and um, we were going to try to get some funds to his widow. And uh, we knew that the 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 opposition was probably staking out her location, so we had to get into position to provide counter surveillance support for the case officer who um, who got uh, completely dressed up. He was, he looked like a, well, he was covered head to toe. He, he looked like a woman and, uh, <laughs> and, and he hobbled down the street and, uh, picking up trash and putting it in a bag. And then he ended up throwing what he it looked like an old crumpled can over the wall into this residence. And it was a crumpled can full of cash for, uh, for this, uh, widow. So, uh, that was a pretty scary night. Um, because we, we knew that there was a real good chance that they were in the neighborhood watching for some type of activity. And I think we completely uh, bamboozled them. So uh, on the protection side, uh, there was a lot, there was a lot of hairy stuff we did. Um, stuff that we, we came out of and we were like, Whoa, um, I talk about, uh, in the book, I talk about a one mission where we, it was the longest drive in that country that we'd ever done. Um, then anything at dark was extremely dangerous. Um, and we made the run, um, to this other city and on the route back, it took us longer because of traffic and we ended up in the dark and, uh, with all we, all of a sudden we came up on him on, uh, two armored personnel carriers bristling with guns. Wow. And, um, these guys are hunting terrorists and they're looking for anything and everything on the road. And we come up on them and, uh, it was one of those moments where, are they going to fire or not? And luckily they didn't. And, 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 uh, it was an eventful, but it could have been gotten really bad. Because you're working in a clandestine manner, you can't necessarily tell the, the, the government you're in, you can't deconflict necessarily like, Hey, we're going to meet with our secret source over in this place, you know? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> a, a, a lot of these places, they had no idea we were operating in their, in their midst. None. And, um, so that was a, a lot of work trying to get, uh, logistics in and, and, and cover our tracks, especially when you're there a lot. So there was a lot of, uh, of different ruses we used to get in country and, and do what we did. And we, and we hid in a lot of different other elements, you know, um, we had a lot of help from, from our, uh, other government and military sources. 
Yeah, so. it sounds like bringing things in in diplomatic pouches, like out of a spy movie or something like that. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to ask you because I mean, some of the other highlights here from your book you talk about, and you mentioned it briefly. So why don't we start there? Um, in Khartoum, uh, looking for Bin Laden. Um, yes. And you said you, um, you you rolled in just as Billy Wah was rolling out. Yeah. Uh, the it's it's funny. Um, my my writers basically laugh and they say I'm the Forrest Gump. Of, uh, of security because I was around for so many things. Um, uh, Bin Laden and I uh, rolled around in the same mud often. And for example, I was in Somalia and he sent his his goons in and they we didn't know it was him at the time. We just knew that an element was going to come in and they were going to up the ante and they did. Yeah. They started out by being uh, active at night and pinpoint accurate with their mortar fire. They, they gave the, the, um, the special rangers that arrived in Mogadishu, the Black Hawk Down group, they, uh, uh, they gave them a welcome their, their second night in with a pinpoint mortar barrage right into their little bird's uh, hangar area. And if you uh, go back through our podcasts, you'll hear uh, George Hand yep. uh, arrived in Mangadishu like the, the day after or the day of that that happened. So, I mean, yeah, it's interesting how these stories uh, intersect. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know till later that it was it was Bin Laden's guys. And then later on, when I uh, uh, when I was in Khartoum, he was there operating. Um, and uh, so and, and some of his prime um cohorts were involved in the Asian terrorist, uh, activities. And a lot of people around the world don't understand because it was never really highlighted how critical those operations were to the worldwide threat. It was huge. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the idea behind flying planes into things came from, um, Ramsey Yusuf, who was working on that plan in Manila when he got discovered and disappeared. Uh, I mean, so much of what was happening in the Philippines was, at, at that time was, uh, you know, the Saudis uh, were financing a series of madrasas, as I recall, over there that they were using to finance terrorist activity. And, um, you know, through through what you guys were doing in the agency and through um, a lot of hard work from the Filipinos, um, a lot of that stuff has been neutralized. Absolutely. Uh, there were some, uh, I mean, when I was in the Philippines, uh, we found out that, um, Hambali, who was uh, the mastermind behind the uh, failed Singapore uh, attack, had actually been targeting Manila Embassy. That was his backup plan. And we caught that guy, uh, a, f- a famous uh, bomber named Father Gozi. And was, he was a, a prolific uh, bomber. Uh, I mean, he was an expert. He was, was he the, uh, the guy who blew up the movie theater in Manila? He, he, he set off five bombs in Manila in one day. They mm-hmm. were called the Rosalde bombings, 30 December uh, 20, uh, 2000. And I actually have, again, I was in Manila at the time doing a dive trip with my, uh, brothers and uh, we had to, to divert around Manila because it was being blown up. And, um, uh, uh, when he was caught, he was able to actually rig a cell phone. And back then that was, that was new technology. So, um, very interesting guy. Uh, and he was, he was getting prepared to do the Manila embassy when he was caught Wow! with a thousand pounds of commercial grade explosive and six spools of dead cord. And so there's all this, uh, it's it's all kind of uh, interwoven. 
I mean, going back to, um, do you want to go back then to Somalia then, um, and, and flesh that out a little bit? Because there's actually, I wanted to ask you too, now that it's starting to jog my memory, there was a, uh, an agency team or maybe it, it, well, I'll let you elaborate if you can, but there's a, uh, a team of Americans that went over a landmine back in, I think, 93 before the Black Hawk down incident, the battle of the Black Sea happened. Um, do you, uh, yeah. Delta force, a former Delta force, um, individuals killed Larry, Larry Friedman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he had an interesting nickname, but, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And, uh, Larry was a uh, part of, um, a, a group of ground branch, uh, special activity division personnel that were, uh, doing route reconnaissance in advance of the military. And, um, when, uh, his vehicle went over a landmine and he was instantly killed and there were some wounded, the, the first POC team provided security for the EVAC. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. And, um, uh, how, Howie Wasden wrote a book called, uh, SEAL Team Six. And in it, he talks about his adventures in Mogadishu, um, some of which were with us. And, and he actually mentions, um, my team and one of the, uh, one of the incidents that happened, uh, you know, during my tour there. Uh, after that incident happened, was that when you got, you came in with the team and began? Working? I came in later. Mm-hmm. I came in just before, uh, Black Hawk down and I was there for a couple of things that changed. The, the environment changed dramatically. Um, uh, Adid was a former asset, so he kind of knew how we operated, and then he got on the bad side of everybody. Yeah, that's not good. And then he decided he wanted to. Uh, he knew who his enemies were, so he put out a reward for all of our heads, the POC team. Holy shit! Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so it was pretty hairy times, and um, and we were the only ones on the road at one point. In fact, uh, Time Magazine had a, a little burp about us. Uh, Dusty SUVs running the pothole streaks of Mogadishu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were the only ones out there at the time. Um, everybody else was uh, was laying low, or if they weren't, they were like the uh, CNN people who were getting killed. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was what happened was Adid was turning the people against the the UN forces. He was holding rallies, and we could just see day by day the population was turning against us, and. Um, and he knew he had to get rid of us, you know, the, the, the whole UN peacekeeping force. And what, what's interesting about that, that was a major a watershed event for peacekeeping. Uh, the U.S. military got a little bit of a black eye on that yeah. one. Um, and uh, that shaped how we dealt with force protection in Bosnia, where I was uh, involved. Um, I, I was uh, General Nash specifically asked for um, the counterterrorism unit that was in that, that uh, to come in and protect, basically look, look after his troops in Tuzla because of the threats that they had um, seen in Somalia. So, um, and not to get political, but there was a, there was an event that happened after Somalia where um, uh, the SECDEF was fired and that was Aspen. And he was, because the troops on the ground asked for tanks, armor, and he said, no, we don't want to have that image. And then later on when people were killed, he was fired. So Sounds if you like fast forward to so. Benghazi, you can, there's, there's a corollary with a different ending. 
There's a, you know, a number of different things and a number of, um, I, I think, different evolutions that were taking place at the time. For instance, uh, around that same time in Mangadishu, we were also hunting down Pablo Escobar in Colombia. And there is a number of um, botched operations um, in, in the, I mean, I shouldn't say botched, but failed operations because mm-hmm. the, it, it, we came to realize we were telegraphing our moves that people could see we were moving all these logistics in the theater, et cetera, et cetera. And that became the criticism in Mangadishu as well. It was like, how many times are you going to air assault these targets? Um, But then of course there's only so many ways you're going to get there, right? You're going to fly in, you're going to um, take Jeeps in and you guys operated in a, in a clandestine manner, which is, I guess that's maybe the third option is to use some sort of subterfuge to get to your target. It was, it was really, Mogadishu was really a tough environment because, um, uh, in, in, uh, Mark Bowden's book, um, Black Hawk Down, he talks about the Italians. The yes. Italians were, were incredibly complicit with Odeed. Checkpoint pasta. Was that what it's oh, called? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that, that figures into this. We, we noticed that when Delta would start to rev up and fly out, a little red light would start to flash out of the, out of the Italian camp at the airport. And, uh, this was, this was trans, this was, um, reported to the head of the UN, uh, contingency at the airport, which was an Egyptian general, I think. And he went and he confronted the Italians and basically said, uh, we're not going to see any more red lights. And this is part of their, they, they were the previous tenants, you could say, of, of, uh, Somalia and they wanted it back. And, and we know from, intelligence reporting, et cetera, that the Italians were in cahoots with Adid. And to the to give you an idea of the level and the and the lethality of this, the chess checkpoint pasta nearby there was a was a post that the Italians gave up to the Nigerians. They never told the Nigerians that they were paying off the Somalis to leave them alone. So the Nigerians came in and they were slaughtered. I mean, we're talking skin. A couple of them were skinned alive. Jeez. Their bodies were dragged through the streets. This part was put on CNN. They showed them, you know, down to their skivvies. We ran into the edge of that ambush. Um, and that, and w- which kind of explains why when we were running back out of there, trying to get to a hospital to, to, to save the life of our, uh, our protectee, um, uh, we weren't getting any any response from the the checkpoint pasta uh, Italian military. They did not react to the shooting. They did not react to our driving up. So we just uh, carried on back to the UN compound, and we were lucky enough to get him back in time to save his life. Your uh, it was a case officer that had been shot. Yes, the deputy. Oh wow! Yeah, at the time we were we didn't I remember. I was saying something about how he had great armor. That right. was much later. <laughs> <laughs> we were not driving in armored cars, really, in uh, in Mogadishu at that time. Um, we had at one point we had two, then we were down to one, and the one was so conspicuous that we just couldn't use it. It was a big white suburban, and it was like the only suburban in the country. And um, the Somalis knew it, and they and they were looking for it, and they called it the white whale. So we weren't going to use that. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was a pretty, pretty ugly moment. 
since you mentioned it earlier, um, and you're you know uniquely qualified to comment on this uh, matter, and we've covered it a lot here, is Benghazi. Uh, what do you think happened there? I mean, it, it, there's been a tons and tons of debate about um, the, the personnel station. They're requesting additional security. Um, should they have gotten it? Should the, the temporary mission facility been upgraded, et cetera, et cetera? Um, but I was wondering what your thoughts are on how all of that played out. Um, uh, yeah, I have, I have a lot of opinions on it, and I'm going to start out with caveating. This is, this is my opinion based on but it's based on my knowledge. I've worked um, in a lot of places overseas, and uh, the State Department RSO staff are are they're they're total troopers. They are um, they're they're given a really rough job, and they're really not that supported. And in this case, they they knew they were understaffed. They asked for um, additional uh, resources. They didn't get them. But I will tell you, the State Department has a record of error on, on the side of not caution. Um, there, I have, I've witnessed situations where they have made policy and procedure based on expediency and convenience over, uh, real protection. Now, mind you, I'm biased. I'm, you know, but I've also worked in these environments and I know when you roll the dice like this, there's people's lives at stake and, um, they have a tendency to roll the dice in the wrong direction. Um, and this, this is one of those ones where they roll the dice and they lost. Um, so that, that was, that was a clear cut in my book. There's no doubt that, that, the, um, that state department management is complicit and, um, and should have been held accountable when we just had, like uh, the, the sec death in Somalia. When, when we had Eben Barlow on the podcast, I mean, he, his view had, based on his experience was that they were forewarned that the ambassador was going to be killed. And he was pretty vocal about that on the show. And that, you know, nothing was done. Remember during that? Yeah, interview, I, he, I, I remember that, him saying he was trying to warn the State Department. They essentially brushed him off. Um, but but then what did you think about the uh, the response that night from the agency security contractors who it sounds like they really manned up um, in, a, in a pretty crappy situation? Yeah, the, 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 let's start off with, with responsibility, just yeah. to clear the waters. Um, our people are not responsible for State Department. Right, right. It was an informal okay. agreement between the annex yeah. and the the consulate, and and that agreement is it's tough to, when you make informal agreements, right? Because you know that's not the way to do business. But I I fully understand because when you are in those environments, it is us that means them and you know the State Department, us being U.S. people against them meaning the, the threats. So, uh, I totally understand, um, you know, wh- why they were compelled to respond. Um, and I, uh, I think it was heroic of what they, what, in terms of what they did and the, the fact that they, for sure they saved lives. Unfortunately, there's, they were, there's no way they were going to be uh, able to prevent the death of the ambassador, just timing wise, uh, yep. looking at the timeline. Yeah. Okay. Um, where I may differ a little bit because I have the perspective of not only being an operator, not only being a team leader, but also managing um, protective operations in, in the war zones in a variety of different places where I, they, they work for me. The whole, every, every POC person 
in Iraq worked for me when I was there. Uh, when I was in Southeast Asia or South Asia, they worked for me. So the, there's a decision-making process. Um, so I have to say with a little bit of a caveat that just jumping off and running to go save those guys is a very dangerous procedure because mm -hmm. if you don't know what you're running into, uh, and you're, and you're also, your, your, your responsibility is the annex. So if you leave the annex unprotected and something happens to the annex while you're gone, these are huge factors. Um, the other part which, is, which is loaded with classified information and other things that oh, shouldn't fall into enemy plus hands. It's your job. You're, right. you're, you're basically demanding your job for another job that you're really not formally engaged in. Um, the other part of it is what a lot of people don't understand uh, with foreign consulates and embassies. It is the host government's responsibility to protect those sites, not the U.S. Our security at embassies is minuscule. We rely on the on. So if the situation becomes so dire that the local security cannot handle the threat, we need to be out of there. So we should have been gone anyways. But there is local security. And uh, the base chief, according to reports, was trying to get that local security elements to come in. So now if you think it's a dark of night and you have multiple converging armed groups. Yeah, very dangerous. The, the chances – there's no deconfliction capable because there's no real communications. So it was a real scary uh, situation. Um, and it, it turned out, you know, it was uh, heroically and um, – and we, you know, we saved, they saved lives. And, but I can understand why the chief of base was hesitant to jump into that situation without all the facts that he could possibly muster. So. Yeah, no, that's a, that's an interesting perspective. Um, especially because if you watch the the film that was made of it, you know, he's the, the chief of base is really portrayed as a, just a huge asshole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that, well, I'll tell you, now that I'm in the literary game, um, the publishers and even some of the writers, they want more drama. Yes. Yeah. And they wanted me to, to, to spice things up. And I'm like, no, this is my book is not a tell all. It's um, it's it's about um, contributions that have been made by a, a, a group. Um, and um, there's. You can, no matter what bureaucracy you work for, you, there's always things you can complain about. Sure. And I, I, I decided to focus on the positives. I mean, I could tell you a, a bunch of horror stories, but that's <laughs> not true. Thomas, before we were recording, you said to me, you know, I never uh, set out to write a book. And, you know, it's a long career. Obviously, there's a ton of stuff you could write about. What, what was, was there one, like, point or one catalyst that made you say, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to write this book. Uh, actually, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, the 13 hours book and movie made me realize that he, the contractors, uh, the guys that were in that situation, they actually believed that the that the protective operations in the agency started at 9-11. They have no idea. That's why yeah. I call this the pre. This is the origin story of protective operations in the agency. My book is the prequel to the 13 hours and they don't know it. And in fact, 
I was the unofficial historian for the unit. Oh, really? For for years, because I I'm a pack rat, and, uh, <laughs> which is which was massive um, cold turkey when I left the agency because I couldn't keep my files. But uh, I mean, I had cable traffic. I had everything I could find on our origins because I'm a big believer in the history, and I was involved. Uh, I jump in and out of the uh, of the box over the years. And some of the guys wouldn't even know who I was. And they said, who is this old dude? Because at one point I was one of the older guys in the unit. Um, and uh, they didn't know the history. And, and it's too bad because it's, it's a rich, uh, very powerful. Um, yes. <laughs> and, and talk about successful. But if you don't know that we've been operating since 90, since not, basically 1990, you're missing out on a whole lot of, uh, of, uh, interesting stuff. So, so that was the reason why I actually wrote the book. What, what do you think about, uh, where the agency security operations are at today? I mean, do you think they, they've kind of veered in the wrong direction, um, and, and perhaps becoming too big, too fast? Um, are they too visible? I, I'm just curious what your thoughts are about, the, the, that three letter acronym group today and where they're at. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot to be proud of, but are there also areas that you think yeah. um, could be better? Yeah, I, I, uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Uh, and this is stuff that, that you can see when you get specialized units, they have a tendency to, um, to get almost incestuous. And what I mean by that is they want to control everything. And if you don't have enough oversight, uh, uh, and what I mean by that is um, enlightened oversight, experienced oversight, not just somebody they put in as a manager, right? but somebody who understands that you get into trouble. Um, there's some legal proceedings going on against a specific naval unit right now. Right. Yep. Okay. A, a number of them uh, that you could probably trace right back to this, this particular characteristic um with i think there's some of that there's a there's a risk with that within my my old unit if you don't have people who are strong enough to to resist the natural urge of type a personalities in a tight confined area the chemistry is strong coming off the rails yeah um the other part of it is you you mentioned something earlier about the old days the low profile um that is an art, but it's and a skill. So you've got to find people. Not everybody that can do the high profile can be the can do the low profile. Right. True. Six foot six guys just don't blend. Um, but uh, that's a specific training um, activity that needs to be rein, reinvigorated uh, because um, the the areas per, areas in the world where you cannot go. Um, you know, uh, 15 magazines, M4, flak, you know, uh, ballistic vest, all that. You just can't do it in that, and operate in that environment. So, and we need people, uh, protection for our case officers in areas where it's not the war zone. And we don't want to be relegated to only the war zone. The, the last thing I'm personally wondering, unless Jack has anything else, and I really appreciate you going the full hour with us. Um, you know, as I said earlier, Dale Comstock was how we were referred to uh, with you. What's your relation with uh, Dale? Because he's a great guy we've known for a long time. Jack's known for certainly a long time, and I've probably known for about five years at this point. 
It's a really strange little world we live in, those of us who've kind of worked in these areas. I know uh, a friend of his. I've known him for many years. Um, his name is uh, uh, Rue. Uh, well, that's his, his nickname. And he's, um, he's uh, one of the, the, I think he was the first command sergeant major of Delta. And he is good friends with Dale. And so I met, the, uh, I was having coffee with Rue in the Philippines, and I met Dale just this year. So, uh, and then we started talking, found out that uh, Dale was in Mogadishu at the same time I was. Yeah, he, he must have been on the same, like, plane even as jo- with George Hand, because I believe it was a squadron that came in after the Battle of the Black Sea um, as reinforcements. Like, what my, my company, I was in 3rd Ranger Battalion um, way after the event, but Bravo Company 375 got into that firefight, in Mangadishu, and then my company, Alpha Company, came in afterwards um, to, to reinforce and help out. Um, but they didn't, I, I don't think they saw any action. Mm. But yeah, that's um, thanks so much for doing this today. I mean, this has been uh, like a super enlightening interview for yeah. me um, because, like you said, I think a lot of us have heard. Um, it, it, I, either through the grapevine, through our friends and so forth, or, or from uh, the wider public is aware of 13 hours and, and all of that. Of course. But like you said, I mean, there, there's not much knowledge about what this organization really is or where it came from or all of these these colorful incidents that they've been <laughs> involved in over the decades. So I, you've sold me. I'm, I'm super stoked to read this book now. Excellent. Yes, I appreciate uh, you guys having me. Yeah. So the the final, uh, you know, plug for the book here, I'm sure a lot of you guys are going to want to pick it up. Guardian Life in the Crosshairs of the CIA's War on Terror. It it is a little bit until it comes out. It comes out May 7th, but it is up for pre-order on Amazon.com. And as uh, I know you've probably said in here, I know Brandon said many times that, uh, you know, pre-orders really matter. So, you know, pre-order it. And May 7th, you know, it'll it'll approach sooner than you think. And and I think that this is going to open up uh, some light into yeah. a lot of stuff that people don't know about, as you said. Um, you know, and I think especially anyone who's read 13 Hours is going to want to read this book now. Absolutely. It's a it's it's a good origin story. And I'm giving I'm doing sneak peeks into the book every two weeks on the Guardian Facebook page okay. and on uh, LinkedIn. So, so where can I'll people be doing find that? Pardon? Where could people find that if people want to check that out? Uh, on LinkedIn, uh, just go to my uh, my LinkedIn page under Thomas Pecora. And uh, Guardian is, uh, if you just put Guardian on Facebook, um, it, it should come up. It's a, uh, it's a separate web page. Okay. And, uh, the, and the book is also out on uh, Barnes & Noble. Cool. So I've got them both. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll have you back on as we get closer to the release date. Um, if, if that works for you and we can go in, we'll you. go in a little bit more in depth with it. And, yeah. Maybe uh, you can read the book and then, and then do a part two. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Absolutely. And it's That'd a while away, so we'll do it for sure. Um, so, uh, I'm going to wrap up this show with Jack Thomas, but I was going to tell you, I'll have this up tomorrow night. It's a really packed schedule this week with Hurricane Group as we have all these meetings and stuff. So I would normally get it up a little earlier. So if you don't see it up tomorrow during the day, no it'll be up tomorrow night. I'll send it over to you. And this was excellent, man. I really, once again, appreciate you going the full hour with us. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Take care, guys. Awesome. Thanks, Thomas.
All right. That Ooh. was awesome, man. I yeah, mean, that was a terrific story. interview. I knew that was going to be interesting. <laughs> yeah. And and when Dale shot, you know, the name over, we were like, that's that's a good one. And, and we saw his background. So that's going to be a great book. Pick it up. May 7th, Guardian, Life in the Crosshairs of the CIA's War on Terror. Um, before we get into a bunch of stuff, which I'd like to, uh, be sure to check out Crate Club, the long-anticipated collaboration watch we did with NFW Watches. That's in the latest premium crate. Uh, to my left, I am looking at just a <laughs> plethora of boxes here of all different new Crate Club stuff, and it's a lot of uh, custom gear, uh, really cool stuff between the weaponized uh, pen that we have and the sunglass cases, and uh, I see the spear fishing. Uh, tool, all different types of really cool shit. So uh, Scott Whitner from the Loadout Room and all those guys, uh, and Brandon, of course, are currently working on bringing you 100% custom products like that in 2019. Um, everything I mentioned, really, and a lot of new stuff that I, I wasn't aware of that's uh, on the horizon. It's a club for men, by men, and you can check that all out at CrateClub.us. That's CrateClub.us. Hey, if you're a dog owner... Many of you now know that we have a partnership with Kuna. Kuna has a team of trained canine handlers picking out a box for your dog each month of healthy treats and training aids. It's custom built for your dog's size and age as well. The products are U.S. sourced, all natural, and they not only promote a healthy diet, but also promote being active with your dog. So whether we're talking a pit bull, a chihuahua, any type of dog, they're going to have something that they're going to love and you're going to love. So you can see all of that at kuna.dog. That's kuna.dog. It's efficient for you. Your dog's going to love it as well, as I said. And uh, check that all out, cuna.dog. And last, I wanted to mention the Spec Ops channel. That's our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, interviews, documentaries, covering the most exciting military content today. Also, all those episodes we did of Training Cell that's all available. So if you're into that action-packed stuff like shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and all sorts of cool stuff, you can check that all out at specopschannel.com. That's specopschannel.com. And I don't know what you're waiting for because you can get all of that great content for only $4.99 a month. Check out our app, SoftRip Radio, because I still have people uh, tweeting me that are like, where are the new episodes? Because they're using the old SoftRep app which is kind of obsolete at this point. So use the SoftRep radio app. Just like NewsRep has its own app now, SoftRep radio has its own app. Everything kind of has its own thing. Um, with that, I was extremely excited, uh, as Nick Hoffman pointed out last night, to see that Alex Hollings did this great article about uh, Russia's space program and some of the weird stuff going on. And that is up on Drudge Report. And there's probably only been a handful of times that a NewsRep or SoftRep article has been on Drudge Report. I remember your article on the disappearance of bin Laden's body and the reasons <laughs> behind it. That was on Drudge Report. This is probably the first time I've seen an article from our guys on uh, Drudge Report in years, and it's it's a big deal. Millions of hits daily. Yeah, it's nice of Drudge to you know link to us. Most outlets just kind of like steal the stuff we publish and write it as their own, and then say we came up with this all on our own. And like, uh, well, I mean, Drudge thanks, is really. CNN. Drudge is really like an aggregate, but yeah, I think that's, they knew that's what that, it is. It's a news aggregator. Yeah, and they knew that it was our story, so you know. Yeah, oh, that's cool. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for Alex. So check out that article. Um, I saw this piece in news today, which is uh, really disappointing. Um, 
a GWAT veteran, which I believe Duncan Hunter Jr., you guys might remember in the Republican primary in 2008, Duncan Hunter's father, uh, Duncan Hunter Sr., ran for president. Um, He got knocked out in the Republican primary pretty early on. But while he was campaigning, his son was in Iraq and I believe Afghanistan as a Marine Corps um, fighter, you know, a now veteran. And it turns out, and, and I, I was reading, I, I, you know, I might be wrong on this. I'd have to double check. I think he might have been the first uh, GWAT veteran to serve in Congress. But he is now facing charges in September over misusing $250,000 in campaign funds. So more than anything, I think a giant disappointment. You know, Jack and I were talking prior about how it's exciting to see uh veterans of this era elected to congress and it sucks when you see an article like this because it it paints them all in a bad light which it shouldn't you know this is no reflection on uh a guy like dan crenshaw for example you know yeah i I, well i mean i think you what you were pointing out ian is like you have to look at the person yeah like just because a person is a, a a veteran it's like big whoop okay i mean cool that's cool but like what else like what else have you been doing what kind of person are you? Um, you know, just because you served in the military doesn't mean you're a great guy. Um, you know, we have a place called Leavenworth where there are a bunch of people who served in the military and they're not great guys. <laughs> so, <laughs> you have to pay attention to this. And um, and, and, and I, I guess I'll point out many of them because, I mean, some of them are kind of victims of these uh, really ridiculous... Um, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh engagement what's i'm having a break for it here I don't know. rules of engagement rules of engagement you know a, a I, few of them i don't know how many people are sitting in leavenworth because of rules of engagement i mean i just think of it's of, really difficult to prosecute i think of michael behanna you know and and those type of things i'm sure he's not the only one who had and I, there's I know uh there's that sf guy who when he was on the polygraph for a job for the cia he uh confessed allegedly i mean as we're as it's been reported in the news he was on the polygraph and he said oh yeah actually i did murder this afghan alleged bomb maker wow and uh there's a big shit show the cia had to report it and say this guy confessed to murder on a polygraph and um and then the issue kind of dropped and then the dude uh in question he he brought the whole thing up on during like a cnn interview like a few years later and um and then it's like the army decided they wanted to start prosecuting. Um, and, and I think that shit show is still going on to this day, but I don't know. I mean, I, I can go on a whole rant about polygraphs. Um, like how dumb is this guy that he was on a polygraph and he's like this silly machine, this pseudoscience can actually yeah. tell if I'm telling the truth or not. And he confessed to a murder on it. Like, dude, if that's, I, yeah, I mean, there's a reason it's not admissible in court. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> But then again, there's been people who have admitted to stuff that they um, that they didn't do due to like long interrogations. There's been, you know, I, it's not related to that. Yeah. I'm just saying. Well, um, well, the, with the the polygraph, the whole point of it is everyone knows it's 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 junk science, but they bring people in there just for that reason because it rattles people and it makes yeah. them nervous and they'll start confessing to stuff. Yeah. Um, it, it's not that it works; it's that you think it works. Um, and then, uh, well, with the interrogation thing that, I mean, I think a lot of that was highlighted by, um, that, uh, making a murderer documentary on Netflix. Um, and they, they talk specifically about the read interrogation method. 
And I, I was trained in the read interrogation method myself, as was um, a whole generation of special forces soldiers. Um, and the, the read interrogation method, um, what it teaches you is um, don't get it, don't get in the suspect's face. You don't threaten them with a death penalty. You know, confess to me or else. What it teaches you to do is to try to empathize with the person and build a theme. And so what you do is you empathize with them, make them think that you're a nice person, that you're a good person, and then you provide them with an out. So it's like a a moral out. So you say, um, listen, you're a good guy. You're a good person, Ian. Um, You know, you just did something out of character. You were in a room with a little boy. No one was looking. You you never would have done anything like that. Someone, please don't take this... uh audio out of, uh, context. <laughs> out of context. <laughs> but you will build a theme like that yeah. um, and, and keep berating the person and, and pushing them in that direction until they'll, they'll just like, you'll even see read interrogation videos with a, with a person being interrogated. Eventually they start nodding like, yep. 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 That's how yeah, I've, I've that's seen how, stuff like that. On forensic files. And, and in the making of a murderer documentary, the problem is they were interrogating a uh, kid. I, I believe, yeah, he was still a minor at the time. He was like 17 and um, let's be real, low, low IQ, not a, not a very smart intellectual person. Um, and the read interrogation people, they'll tell you, we have never gotten a false confession. There has never been a false confession. I mean, come on. It's fucking bullshit. Everyone knows it's bullshit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, some of these things that I mean, this is like a whole separate discussion. Um than what we originally yeah, started yeah, talking about. But it, but it's a, it is an interesting topic, and I, I think some of the things that we take as accepted science, um, that we take as you know um, factual tested protocols that never yield false results, um, can you know use a second look in many cases. It was also General Mattis who said um, when he was asked about waterboarding prior to being a part of the administration. Uh, he said, and I don't remember the exact quote, but he's some of the effect of, I could do a lot more with a pack of cigarettes than waterboarding someone if we have a terrorist. Yeah, that's true. Um, and, uh, well, I mean, some people are going to be kind of pissed about it, but I wrote about this in my book, um, about the, uh, detention facility and I mean, they, there, they used a, a carrot and stick approach. I mean, the, the detainees would be offered the pack of cigarettes, um, hey, just dime out your friends. We'll let you go. You know, that kind of thing. Um, the stick was, you know, if you don't tell us what we want to know, we're not going to let you sleep. Uh, you're going to, we're not going to let you even sit down. Mm-hmm. You know, they do things like that. Um, but that, that was the method that they were using at that time in Iraq. Yeah. And then the, uh, other stories we wanted to get into, there was a, uh, there's Brandon walking by if you're watching <laughs> on YouTube, there was a Admiral who, uh, had a, there was a suicide that yeah. happened in Bahrain. Pretty crazy story. This guy here. was the admiral of the Fifth Fleet. Yeah. So this is um, Scott Stearney. This one's from New York Post. A decorated U.S. admiral was found dead over the weekend in the Middle East. The victim of an apparent suicide, according to a report. Vice Admiral Scott Stearney, commander of the Navy's Fifth Fleet, was discovered inside his home in Bahrain. Uh, military officials said in a statement Saturday that no foul play was suspected, but they wouldn't confirm if Stearney took his own life. 
CBS News, however, quoted officials saying his death was an apparent suicide. Yeah. So really unfortunate story and, and uh, suspicious circumstances on some level. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to get like my tinfoil hat on and I, and I hate it when people do that. But I mean, I, I was just pointing out before that it's weird that the commander of the Fifth Fleet in Bahrain apparently commits suicide the next day, a carrier strike group is deployed to the Persian Gulf. It's like, ugh, what what the hell is going on right now? But, um, yeah, it's it's a sad story um, for sure. And when you see even the senior leaders of our military are committing suicide, like at what point are we finally going to be like something's broken? Like shit's not working here. Mm-hmm. And like I. I don't know. We've covered it so many times and, 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 and other outlets have other news sources covered all the time about um, the suicides. What we were talking about before about troops coming off the rails, things going haywire. I mean, there's a reason for that. Um, and maybe we need to start asking ourselves some hard questions. Yeah. Well, rest in peace. Uh, and then there's this other article here that's been covered by a few outlets yeah. out of Beijing. <laughs> uh, the West may be wrong about China's social credit system. Uh, this one is by Bing Song for the Washington Post. Well, yeah, it, it is. It's by Bing Song. But if you notice... The director, you have the... Am I... Bergrun Institute, Institute China Center in out, Beijing. And down there's a little uh, byline here. A little, or not a byline, but in italics at the end of the article. This was produced by the World Post, a partnership of the Bergrun Institute and the Washington Post. So mm. it looks like a normal op-ed on the surface. But and what well, just to get into this article real quick, what it's attempting to do is to try to soften the image um, of the, uh, the, the Western reporting on China's social credit system, uh, which is something we've been reporting on for several years. Um, the story has really picked up, um, you know, some, some mainstream coverage over about the last year. Um, and China, the, what, what it's essentially what it gets at, and, and the author of this article even points it out, is that it's not really a social credit system. And I, I kind of agree with her here because what that does is it makes people think it's uh, analogous to our credit card uh, credit system that you have credit, um, finance credit. Um, and, but that's not really what it's talking about. That may be a part of it in China that you have, um, finance credit, but there's also judicial credit. There's also, um, political credit, um, these other different types of credit and there are different systems that play into, uh, a whole, um, and what she points out is that you probably shouldn't use this term, social credit system because it, it creates this this false image in our minds um the more accurate trans translation would probably be a social trust system now that's nice but i fail to see how this change in translation um softens the blow of this super orwellian panopticon state that <laughs> the chinese are establishing um even though it's a social trust system, mm-hmm. the social trust is a it's a social trust score that is being assigned to you by the state um, and rewarding you based on your loyalty to the Chinese Communist Party and um, the 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 mores established by that party. Uh, and she makes a whole number of excuses for what they're doing in here. Um, it, it, there, there's a lot of double think going on here in this article, basically trying to say, yes, this exists, but it's not that big of a deal and don't really worry about it. And, 
you know, it, it gives a little like mansplaining, like, well, in China, we, the Chinese people have a different view of their government and have different expectations of their government. Uh, what she's saying is that, you know, the Chinese don't get freedom. So, you know, shut the fuck up. It, it is what it is. Uh, she goes in into one part about how the Chinese uh, believe that their government has a responsibility um, to be a moral authority and to enforce moral morals on the public. And it's like that, that on the surface, that doesn't make any fucking sense because every government in the world passes legislation and passes laws that are related to morality, uh, whether we, we, we couch it in those terms or not. Every state in the world passes these laws based on that culture's perception of morality. Um, you know, we, we are laws against everything from um, so-called victimless crimes like prostitution to laws against rape and murder. Those are all based on our conception of morality. Um, so that China does not have some monopoly on virtuous behavior. Uh, I don't know what the hell that's supposed to mean. But this gets more interesting. I mean, I knew this was fishy when I first read it. But then I saw this uh, New, York's to- New York Times journalist, uh, his last name was Forsyth, did a little bit of a deep digging mm-hmm. on it. And I, and I believe he speaks Chinese. So he was able to go more in depth on this than, than I would be able to. Um, and what, <laughs> what you find out, so Bing Song uh, is part of this Bergruen Institute. Um, she is a Chinese national from the mainland. Uh, came to the West in 1988 on a merit-based scholarship, which was exceedingly rare back in those days, went to Oxford, then went back to China. Um, she joined um, Goldman Sachs, became a, uh, a manager for the, the Chinese division of Goldman Sachs, and she went from a, a new hire at Goldman to being a directing manager in two years. Wow. Yeah, that doesn't happen. No, that doesn't happen by accident. <laughs> Um, that's not normal. She's married to this dude who teaches at, uh, at a university in Beijing. Who's a Canadian. He's not Chinese. He's a Canadian, uh, national, um, teaches, uh, at this, at this university in Beijing where he basically offers up apologies for the Chinese communist government and their authoritarian style. Um, he's written even like books and articles. He's like, he's the darling of the communist party because he says, well, you know, they're a, they're a merit based dictatorship. They're a softer, nicer type of dictatorship. And, you know, he's, he's the typical kind of dude who's like, you know, I'm going to be a part of this elite class. And I think it's great that our class is in charge. Um, I think it's great that we're the, you know, he never actually says this, but of course, you know, you get the, you get the sense that it's like, look, the, yes, the, the jackboot is stomping on a human face forever, as George Orwell said. But, hey, I'm wearing the jackboot, so, you know, shut the fuck up. Uh, and there's just all kind. you go into the background of this couple, and, I mean, it's just incredibly clear. And I can't prove, I couldn't prove to you factually that they are an informal or formal asset of the Chinese Communist Party. But if you start looking at them and, and their track record and who they are and try to connect the dots, what's going on becomes very clear. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, I'm not saying that they're like on the take and they're they're receiving. Um, well, maybe they are, but 
Uh, I'm not saying that it's a direct relationship like, hey, we'll pay you to write these bullshit op-eds in the American press. Be, but but there's definitely I mean, he, he the, the husband teaches at uh, at this Chinese university. The wife is, you know, closely related, uh, you know, involved in, in Chinese American finance. Um, the quid the quid pro quo is unmistakable. I mean, it, it's certainly there. And, and for her to write this. And, and not disclose this information. I mean, she is far from being an unbiased source. Um, and so it's just interesting because most people will probably just see this and say Washington Post, pretty reputable yeah, yeah. Uh, publication. Well, that's, this that, isn't fake news. That's the ultimate irony, of course, is the Washington Post has their motto, democracy dies in the darkness. Jesus Christ, it sure does. <laughs> yeah. And you start looking at this thing, the Bergeron Bergeron. Institute. And I mean, like their whole like reason for existence is basically like to, to basically tell America why we suck. Um, and, and the people who advise them and sit on their board, I mean, their whole, their whole reason for existence is essentially, I, I, I mean, I couldn't help but, but look at this and see that they're very much aligned with Chinese strategists who see their current role of China is to be managing a declining power. And the declining power is the United States in their eyes. And that they see their role is to manage us uh, as we become a second-rate power and China becomes a global hegemon. Uh, And this institute looks like they're kind of the American liaison (laughs) helping, helping, uh, helping us ease us into that position. Uh, but, you know, people can go and take a look at this institute and look at these characters for themselves and make their own determination. But yeah, do your research. It's, for, it's, and it's, by the way, B-E-R-G-G-R-U-E-N, if people want to look up the Bergeron Institute China Center. From my point of view, I mean, people t- talk all about China, uh, uh, Russian collusion or, or the threat about Iran. Something's got to be done about Iran. Bro, no, no. China is America's number one threat. If you want to know... Who the bad guys are? Look at this. Fuck Russia. I mean, they're, they're going to be. You know, Russia is has a bunch of islands where that seagulls crap all over, and, and you know the 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 North Sea. I mean, there's there's nothing. I mean, I, Russia Russia is a threat, but they're the small threat. Um, they're not economically or socially viable over the long term. Um, China is looking to supplant us as a global power. And this is the threat that people should be focused on. I saw over the past week, um, Gordon Chang, who's a friend of mine, expert on China, um, writes for Forbes, is regularly on pretty much all media outlets from Fox News to MSNBC. Uh, He's been pretty vocal on Twitter over the past week about Trump wanting to be more diplomatic with China and, and have better relations. And Gordon's been saying that we shouldn't be uh, easing into that until we tell China to do something about their human rights policy. It's never going to happen. China, which I think is why Gordon Chang wants us, you know, a guy like that and, and many experts on the subject who are anti-China don't want us to build relations with China. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that his, you know, his heart is in the right place, but China is not going to democratize. That's, that's a myth. No, I don't, and I don't think he believes that in the least. I don't know if you're saying Trump believes that or, Oh, I mean, I don't think Trump knows what Trump believes. I yeah. mean, he's just kind of winging it day to day. And the Chinese are just laughing at him because, like I said, uh, the Trump. Sorry, I'm getting lost in my words there. Uh, You know, Trump wakes up in the morning and he has a different idea, um, you know, hour to hour about what he believes about these things. The Chinese plan in like hundred year spans. 
So, I mean, they're just laughing at, at Trump. They're like, well, whatever. And also the uh, incoming uh, tariffs with trade, that's going to have a big impact on things. I mean, I have I actually have family members who um, own small businesses that that, you know, buy materials from China. And they're like, yeah, my my costs are going to go up if we end up going through with all this stuff on tariffs. So <sighs> he's playing checkers. We need to play chess. Yeah. All right. Well. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode with Thomas Bacora. I, I thought that was really excellent. I uh, I greatly appreciate him coming on with us and taking the time. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to that book. I'm once looking again. forward to reading it. Yeah. Once again, the book is Guardian Life in the Crosshairs of the CIA's War on Terror. It's written by Thomas Bacora with John Land and Lindsay Preston. Available May 7th. Up now for pre-order on Amazon or as Thomas said, uh, Barnes & Noble as well. And other than that, we have an incredibly busy week here at Hurricane Media with uh, meetings and a lot of great stuff happening. We also have our big party Friday night that's on the horizon. And uh, that's really it, man. I mean, it's just it's, it's going to be a packed week for us. Yeah, yeah. I'm managing to get, get shows up somehow, though. And then next week, I will not be here. So I have some best ofs that I've already made that I've scheduled out. Not actually, not really best of it. Stuff from Brandon's Power of Thought podcast, including the interview with uh, Captain Jerry Yellen, which is just awesome. The um, the man who flew the final combat mission over Japan. I'm pretty sure, very likely, the final interview of his life because he passed away just a couple of months after we did that interview. Um, and he all, and you know what's interesting to me is that he was in the what we now call the Air Force in a very short period of time where the name went from the Army Air Corps yeah. to the Army Air Forces and then to the Air Forces we know now now know it today. I believe for seven years it was called the Army Air Forces and yeah. he was in there during that time period, which I thought was interesting. So all right guys, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sockrep Radio and we're out. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.